Are you willing to put aside all speculation and announce to the people here that you are not running in 2020? No. Overall, wages are down. People are working longer hours for less money. Obamacare is illegal immigrants. Uh, African Americans uh, being mistreated in society. Noting that world leaders laughed at President Trump. Russian witch hunt. Trade war. You know what it is? My new slogan. America great. Hello, I'm Drew Sheldrick. Thanks for joining us for this special debates edition of 2020 Vision. We've got American politics lecturer Dr David Smith with us this week to break down all the action from the Democratic debates in Miami, Florida. 20 presidential hopefuls took to the stage over two nights to thrash it out over policy and their past records in the first of many televised encounters to come in the months ahead. Let's get started with a listen to some of the highlights from the first debate. There are a lot of politicians who say, oh, it's just not possible, we just can't do it, it's have a lot of political reasons for this. What they're really telling you is they just won't fight for it. Well, health care is a basic human right, and I will fight for basic human rights. I am the only candidate here who has passed a law protecting a woman's right of reproductive health and health insurance, and I'm the only candidate who has passed a public option. I just want to say there's three women up here that have fought pretty hard for a woman's right to choose. So I'll start with that. You said recently that the reason you didn't want to repeal Section 1325 was because uh, you were concerned about human trafficking and, and drug trafficking. But let me tell you what, Section 18, Section. Uh, Title 18 of the U.S. Code, Title 21 and Title 22 already covered if human we, trafficking. This is a no trafficking. Smuggler, I think that you should do your homework, your homework on this issue. If you did your homework on this issue, you would know that we should repeal this section. This is for all the American citizens out there who feel you're falling behind, who feel the American dream's not working for you. The immigrants didn't do that to you. The big corporations did that to you. The 1% did that to you. This is an urgency, and for those who have not been directly affected, they're tired of living in a country where their kids go to school to learn about reading, writing, and arithmetic, and how to deal with an active shooter in their school. When we weren't in there, they started flying planes into our buildings. So I'm just saying right now, the we Taliban have an didn't attack us on 9-11, Al-Qaeda well, I understand. Al-Qaeda attacked us on 9-11. I understand. That's why I and so I many other people joined the military to go I after Al-Qaeda. I just don't want to be your president to be your president. I want to be your president to do the job. Thank this you, This is sir. not about me. This is about getting America working again. Thank you. Dr. David Smith, welcome back to the podcast. Good afternoon. Let's start with the first debate. Everyone expected Elizabeth Warren would be the one to shine among a, a field of lesser-known candidates mm-hmm. on issues like healthcare. She probably did, but uh, I think it's fair to say Democrats like Julian Castro, Amy Klobuchar probably managed to rise above uh, the noise on a few occasions as well. Do you agree? I think that Castro was the one who really raised his profile in this debate. Arguably, Castro has been hard done by in terms of the lack of media attention that he's got. Like Pete Buttigieg, he is the mayor of a red state city, San Antonio in Texas, and certainly on one of the issues that is going to be very important in this election, which is immigration. He really demonstrated in this debate that he has got more expertise than anyone. I also thought that it was very good that he talked about the current crisis that's happening 
with Central American asylum seekers coming to the United States border, he recognises that is a continental crisis that actually requires a much larger policy response than just making changes to US immigration policy. He actually talked about a Marshall Plan for Honduras and uh, Guatemala. So he really showed a very, very firm grasp of that subject. And I think that he was the real standout from from that debate. Probably the only candidate who really significantly raised his profile. One of the most disappointing rounds of uh, responses, I thought, was uh, in regards to gun control. Mm. Like, this should have been an easy win for Democrats, especially with the NRA seemingly imploding at the moment. Yeah. The second debate, obviously, we saw a lot more concrete policies being talked about on that issue. But why did none of this first batch of Democrats really sort of seem to... They seem to be caught flat-footed. They didn't... I don't know. I wonder if it's because... It's an issue where there is so much agreement on basic principles and where there probably are disagreements over specific policies, but those things are being seen as too far in the weeds, given the sort of importance of the general agreement on gun control. But yeah, they just seemed really unprepared for yeah, Warren it. Warren in particular didn't seem to be able to respond to any kind of concrete policy. Yeah. And this has been a criticism of Warren, which is that she's generated a lot of momentum now by going down a sort of very specific path. She's got these issues which she has really made her own, like uh, college debt forgiveness. But she seems to be talking less and less these days about other issues, uh, in, even including health care prior to this debate, she was criticised for not talking um, very much about Medicare for all. That was some ground that she reclaimed in that debate because she was one of two candidates to raise her hand um, when she was asked if she would allow a public health care plan to actually supplant private health care The other plans. one was Bill de Blasio, The other one I was think, Bill yeah. de Blasio, yeah. Yeah, who was otherwise a bit of a non-factor. So yes. I think that... Uh, Warren clawed back some important ground there with the kinds of democratic activists who are watching those things very closely. Basically, I think Warren just stayed in place Yeah. Uh, in terms of where she is in the race, which is a, a, in a pretty good place to, uh, you know, to be fair. So she probably didn't either gain or lose very much from these debates. The candidates in uh, both debates seem pretty eager to talk about immigration. It's yes. interesting that Democrats seem to see this as a real strength in a similar way to Trump does, but obviously from a completely different policy mm. perspective. Has something shifted there on the progressive side of politics in recent months to think that this is really going to be a vote winner for them in the next election? Yeah, I think that the brutality of the policy towards Central American asylum seekers that we have seen over the last few months means even if they're not necessarily thinking in strategic terms of is this going to be a vote winner, they see it as something they really have to respond to. It's an urgent humanitarian issue that gets just to the most basic questions about what kind of society is the United States going to be. So I don't know if they're even thinking about it in terms of winning votes. They're certainly thinking about it in terms of they can't win this primary um, without taking a very, very firm position against what is going on. Now, if we look at the, you know, really unpleasant facts of the whole situation, Trump still hasn't deported as many people as were deported during the Obama administration at the height of this. 
right? So a really awkward and unpleasant fact is that you know Trump is continuing and ramping up the brutality on a set of policies which were actually first enacted by a Democratic president in response to this crisis that has now been going on for five years. So I think it is important that uh, people like Castro were actually talking more broadly about the kind of solutions that are required to this crisis. But I thought that it was very, very important that all of the candidates took a really firm stance against what is an open policy of brutality in order to try to deter people from coming to the United States in the first place. Let's talk about the losers from round one. I had uh, Tim Ryan and John Delaney on my list. Uh, Poor Delaney basically became the butt of jokes by the moderators by the end of that debate. Uh, But many of the candidates uh, really seem to be gunning for Beto O'Rourke in this round. Why was he such a hot target? So I think there's a widespread and correct perception that Beto O'Rourke is not a very substantial candidate at all, that he's got a bit of charisma and very little else, that he doesn't have very many really distinguishing policy positions and the ones that he does have tend to be a bit plastic. And so I think that was what really got shown up in this debate. Unusually for a candidate like this, I think there's actually a bit of anger towards him because of the fact that he should be running in the Texas Senate race, right. which he would actually have a chance of winning and which would be very, very important to the prospects of Democrats overall. So he built up a huge amount of goodwill with the party during his run against Ted Cruz in Texas, and he came within two percentage points of winning that. And I think that people are annoyed with him now that he's getting into this race, which no one can really see him winning. Yeah. Um, when he should be, you know, he should be out doing doing he could do a lot of good for the country by uh, by running for the Senate in in Texas. So I think if there's anyone that people would actually just want to put out of the race uh, as as soon as possible to give him a chance of doing something else. It's him. Uh, Before we move on to the second debate, I just wanted to briefly mention Cory Booker. How did you think he came out of the debate? He was probably the only other Mm. one with a slightly um, bigger name than than some of the lesser-known candidates. Yeah, I don't think that he came out of it particularly well. Right. Um, Like Beto O'Rourke, he spoke a bit of Spanish. Yes. That if your Spanish is bad enough for me to understand, then it's probably not (laughs) a net benefit overall. Yeah. Cory Booker really looks like someone who... Missed his chance. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right, let's get into the much feistier second round with a listen at uh, some of the sparring that took place between some of the better-known candidates in debate number two. And I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden. Um, I do not believe you are a racist, and I agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. But I also believe, and it's personal, and I was actually very... It was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. 
I was a public defender. I didn't become a prosecutor. I came out, I left a good law firm to become a public defender. When in fact, when in fact, do when you fact, agree today? Do you agree today that you were wrong to oppose busing in America? Then no, do you agree? I did not oppose busing in America. What I opposed is busing ordered by the Department of Education. That's what I oppose. I was part of the second class to integrate Berkeley, California public schools almost two decades after Brown v. Board of Education. Because your city council made that decision. It was so a local decision. So that's where the federal government must step the, in. The that's why we have the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. That's why we need to pass the Equality Act. That's why we need to pass the ERA, because that's there right. are moments in history where states fail to preserve the civil rights of all people. The ERA. David, we have to start off with the Biden v. Harris battle. Mm. Kamala Harris was undoubtedly the standout of these two hours. I don't think you could disagree. Uh, She clearly planned her attack on Vice President Joe Biden's record on race. She Mm. picked her moment perfectly and executed it flawlessly, I thought. Uh, There was no hiding his shock at that attack, was there? There wasn't. And it is amazing that he wasn't prepared for that. Not only was it an extremely well-executed attack, his response to it, I think, was worse than she could possibly have imagined, which is to say, oh, I didn't oppose busing. I just opposed it when it was done by the Department of Education. Can you just explain what busing is for our listeners? Yeah, so busing was a scheme to desegregate high schools in American communities, which were no longer segregated by law, but which were de facto segregated. Now, busing was criticised in a lot of white communities as social engineering, uh, you know, bringing children out of their communities and into other communities for the sake of this social experiment. But the fact is that busing had actually been used to maintain segregation for years before that. Right. So what we're talking about is busing that actually integrated high schools. Now, when Biden says that oh, he was in favour of busing, but not when it was done by the Department of Education. I mean, there were so many uh, segregationists who claimed to be in favour of integration, just not when it's done by the federal government, right? That it has to be uh, done by local communities. If the United States had waited for local communities to dismantle all of the structures of segregation, they would still be waiting. And they still are waiting in many cases. The federal government, you know, from the Brown versus Board of Education decision onwards, when Dwight Eisenhower actually had to send the National Guard into Arkansas in order to desegregate Arkansas Central High School, the federal government had a vital role in dismantling structures of segregation in the United States to the extent that they have been segregated. And Biden almost sounded like a state's rights, uh, you know, Dixiecrat um, when he is talking about he wants integration, but he just doesn't want the federal government to do it. It betrayed this incredible lack of understanding um, or just indifference to how desegregation actually happened in the United States. And, I mean, Biden has been very popular with African-American voters, especially older African-American voters. I think that he owes a lot of that to, the obviously, the link with Obama yeah. and, uh, and his loyalty to Obama. But I think that that would be wearing extremely thin 
Yeah. Um, at, at this point, especially with the alternative of someone like uh, Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris has come in for a lot of criticism because of her background as a prosecutor who prosecuted tough-on-crime policies which damaged the lives and communities um, of many African-Americans. And that was actually something that Biden referenced in his comeback when he said, I was a public defender, I, uh, I wasn't a prosecutor. But I think that the way that Harris attacked him there and just the 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 terrible weakness of his response really established Harris as a quite a strong candidate in this race. Also on immigration, right? She had that really yeah. great way of saying, I, I respect the the past administration. I worked with them as Attorney General of California, mm-hmm. but I, you know, disagree in what they did on deportation of those three million yeah. Um, yeah, um, people back to, to Mexico. So it was a very clever way of, of uh, being polite, but then obviously lining up such an incredible attack on multiple, you know, parts of his policy platform. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that Biden looks very weak coming out of that debate. Uh, even people who might agree with him or sympathise with him would have to be a little bit shocked at how this man who, you know, wants to be President of the United States, wants to go on and defeat Trump, was completely unprepared for the most obvious uh, questions that but, would be asked of him. But no, not just the, the the questions as well, but just kind of his debate prep in general. Like yeah. uh, there were two occasions where he gave up a lot of time on a response, yeah. which just seems like, you know, the first no-no of debating mm. 101 to say, oh, well, my 30 minutes, my 30 seconds is up, you know, over to the next candidate. Yeah, just bizarre. When you look at the way that every other candidate just fought yes. for time, yeah. um, it really indicated a certain level of complacency among other things, of, you know, taking his support for granted. Uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, do you mm. think his biggest weakness is that we've heard all this stuff about political revolution just, you know, sort of four yeah. years ago? I mean, is that a real threat to him that there's this sense that, yeah, that we want to hear something new, we want to see something new from a candidate, and he's kind of here repeating these same lines over and over again? Yeah, it, it possibly, I think, puts a ceiling on his support, although I think he is one of the he's still one of the strongest candidates in the field no question and one of the things that his supporters like about him is his consistency right is the fact that he he doesn't change he doesn't try to mold himself to the circumstances he's always got this very direct message that things are very very badly wrong a revolution is needed I'm leading that revolution. So that kind of consistency on his part is not that surprising. The fact that, you know, Sanders now is is what he was four years ago, um, really not surprising at all. That You know, he's going to live or die by that strategy. He's not going to try to change anything um, to in order to win. Pete Buttigieg said something during the debate, uh, which made me think I, I hadn't heard it in very many Democratic debates before, and that was on this issue of uh, religion. And mm. he mentioned uh, the Republicans cloaking themselves uh, with religion and and how how you know calling out how they could possibly do that, especially everything that was going on with those immigration uh, camps on the border. Yeah. Did you th- think that was an interesting to to bring religion into the conversation? Oh yeah, and I th- I mean I thought that was a very good line and a very good point uh, politically. I think. Um, you know he's he's found his audience he knows who he's speaking to and this actually follows on for a few weeks now of really positioning himself as the bane of the christian right in the 
United States. He's basically setting himself up as the Christian left right. in the United States. Now, from a political point of view, that's actually a very, very niche position. Yeah. Um, it's not something that's going to win him the Democratic Party nomination, let alone win him the presidency. But I always suspect with Buttigieg that he's thinking a lot further down the line than this election cycle, which is not that likely to become the president. But I think of all of the candidates in the field, um, he's the one who has personally and politically benefited the most from actually being in the race, who seems to be laying the groundwork, um, you know, for another future race, um, especially if Trump wins the uh, wins the next election. And I think that this is all part of it. I mean, Buttigieg gave a lot of very detailed and interesting answers to questions today and responses. He, you know, he he sounded like he was giving a detailed radio interview or something rather than participating in a political debate. Uh, one thing that he mentioned in his final pitch was this need for generational change in mm, Washington. Yeah. Are you seeing anything, especially from uh, older candidates like Biden and Sanders, uh, that suggests to you that there's any sort of move to reach out to young people and this next generation with their campaigns? I mean, I'm sure that Sanders would point to the fact that he does have very strong youth support. Yeah. And, you know, despite being the oldest person in the in the whole race, he's got one of the most dedicated uh, bases of youth support that we've seen in a very long time. As for Biden, he's not going for the young people at all. Yep. He, he even said in an interview a few weeks ago to young people, essentially, bite me. You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, he said something you, along the lines of, you know, I don't know what they've got to complain about yeah. this new generation. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's an interesting I've never experienced smallpox. I don't know if he yeah. said that, but it's the sort of thing. <laughs> it was the vibe. Yeah. 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 So, no, I mean, by Biden, he clearly knows that his constituency is older voters. Yeah. And, um, you know, if anything, what he wants to do is take older voters away from Trump, and he thinks that he can do that. I'm not so convinced that he actually can. I mean, I, I know a lot of people think that he's ideally positioned to take on Trump because he could get those marginal uh, older voters in the upper Midwest. I'm not entirely convinced, but that is definitely his, uh, you know, that's definitely his pitch. And actually, I suspect as the campaign goes on and as he gets less popular, uh, within the Democratic Party, that pitch is increasingly going to be, look, you you may not think I'm the perfect Democratic candidate, but I'm the only one who can beat Trump. We have to talk about Marianne Williams. We do. Uh, the self-help guru running for the Democratic nomination. Yeah. Uh, Look, wow, from her comments about uh, calling New Zealand's Prime Minister to her weird beef with anyone that had specific plans mm. uh, to her claim that she was going to weaponise love uh, to defeat uh, President Trump, what planet was this woman from? It was she was like a cross between Norma Desmond from Sunset Boulevard <laughs> yes. and Kate Bush. Yes. It yes. was... A very weird but really quite enjoyable vibe. Oh, I want it back for every debate. All, all the way through, everyone was just waiting for her to speak again. Yeah. Um, and I think most of us really wish that she had got to say more. I mean, it wouldn't have contributed anything to the actual political discourse. Yeah. But, yeah, some of the things that she said, beginning with criticising everybody else for talking about plans yes. and saying, well, Donald Trump didn't have a plan, 
Yeah, so being the anti-plan candidate. Yes. Yep, saying the first thing she would do would be to call up Jacinda Ardern and, of course, that very memorable closing monologue where she said she would fight and beat Donald Trump by harnessing the power of love and that would be the field that she would meet him on. Has any candidate ever painted such a vivid picture of what a debate would look like? You could see the other candidates sort of looking on in fear that she was just about to say something mm. completely bonkers. Yes. She has had a history of, of saying uh, things along the lines of being anti-vaccination, right? Yeah, and uh, she was very wise to keep that out. Yes. I, I think that she's backtracked on the anti-vaccination okay. stuff, but that's not something that you can ever really recover from. And if she actually was a serious candidate, then she would get hammered yeah. um, on that. But because she's not, everyone... I think was just happy to enjoy the show. Now, just quickly, the next round of debates, I think, at the end of July, they're CNN debates. Mm. Um, there's going to be two rounds again, so obviously it's still, oh, a, big, really? it's still a big field. Oh, um, right. Just looking at these debates the last two days, yeah. who do you think is definitely gone at this stage or is likely to sort of... I mean, I can't say who's definitely gone, but in terms of who should be gone, yeah. uh, Tim Ryan, John Delaney, yeah. Andrew Yang, John Hickenlooper. I think uh, possibly across the two days, John Hickenlooper had the worst performance. Right. Um, although uh, that's a really tough call, though, because both <laughs> Delaney and, and Ryan were terrible. Um, uh, of, of the people with absolutely no shot, Swalwell possibly had the best performance tonight because yeah. of his strength on gun control, but there's really no reason why. Uh, he should be in the debate. Um, oh, I almost forgot about Michael Bennett. Yeah, what was he doing yeah, there? Yeah. Um, Jay Inslee's made his point about climate change. I don't know if he's going to stick around to make it any further. In terms of the people who might have thought that they actually had a shot, but it's fairly clear after those debates that they don't, I think that's Cory Booker and Beto O'Rourke. Right, okay. I thought Gillibrand as well was probably yeah, another one that was like... Gillibrand, Gillibrand didn't cut through no, yeah. very much. Yep, she seemed to um, value a quantity of time over quality of comment, I thought. She did, and I thought where she was trying to cut through was on abortion. Yeah. Um, trying to be the really strong candidate in favour of abortion rights. Now, whether it was because in these debates the people asking the questions actually didn't give that enough time. Yeah, the which first I debate think, it was barely mentioned. Yeah, I think that should have got a lot more time given that Trump is gearing up to make this one of the main issues of uh, 2020. So there was almost no detail on this at all. I think that's actually the fault of the debate moderators. Yeah. Possibly also the fact that Republicans in various states have taken up such extreme positions on this now that possibly the Democratic strategy is let's not even talk about the details because just by being in favour of keeping it legal at this point, we're the moderates in the debate. So I don't know. But, yeah, Gillibrand, other than that, um, she didn't really make the impact that she could have. David, uh, we could go on talking about all these candidates for hours. I hope the next time we speak, there are a few less in the field so we can. I really, really hope so. <laughs> I, so I can just forget their names and how to spell them Indeed. forever. Yep. Thanks very much for joining us. My today. pleasure. Thanks also this week to the Babamara Brass Band, the MIT Concert Choir, Lobo Loco, and Ketza for their musical contributions, and to the University of Sydney's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences for their studio assistance. 